What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. Coming up on the show today, we're going to have to talk about the Republican infrastructure offer they're preparing, totaling about a trillion dollars. Big news today as Biden will meet Vladimir Putin. President Biden will meet Vladimir Putin in mid-June, June 15th and June 16th. We've got Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media, joining us. He's a former Biden campaign surrogate who wrote a piece today titled, Bipartisanship is Dead, Republicans Killed It. I want to press him on that and find out if that's actually true. And of course, we've got Rick Davis, Bloomberg politics contributor, joining us as he so often does. Excited to talk to him about some of this big foreign policy news, Russia, Belarus, the Middle East. Again, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. I am here with Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. He's a former Biden campaign surrogate. We've got Rick Davis, Bloomberg politics contributor, and we've got a ton of infrastructure negotiations news to sort through here. Uh, number one, Senate Republicans are preparing to send a nearly $1 trillion infrastructure offer. They plan to send this Thursday to the White House, according to Senator Roger Wicker, Republican of Mississippi. Uh, compare that to the original Republican offer of $568 billion, so that's coming up. But aside from that, a bipartisan group of senators is also beginning to hold talks. They support the original White House and Senate Republican conversation, but this seems to essentially be a backup plan, as it has been described by uh, Senator Mitt Romney. This also includes Senator Joe Manchin. So we've got a dual-track approach to negotiating an infrastructure measure. But let's skip ahead to the hard part. Republicans have insisted no changes to the 2017 tax cuts, and this came up today with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who got into the issue of how to pay for this. Let's play that sound. The president proposed a way to pay for it. We're awaiting here that uh, hear back from uh, Republicans on how they would propose to pay for it. So if they don't want to touch the 2017 uh, tax cuts, a $2 trillion tax cuts that did not end up having a windfall back to the American public, I guess that's their choice, what they put in their proposal, but they have to propose an alternative. Okay, so Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Let me just take your temperature here. A lot of news to sort through, but the big thing is this tax issue, the pay-for issue, seems tough. How, how optimistic are you? How pessimistic are you? How do you uh, synthesize all this information? Do you actually think that there's going to be a bipartisan deal? 
Hey, Jack, good to be with you. Uh, I do think there will be some semblance of a bipartisan deal. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, Republicans and Democrats, Mitt Romney, others are fairly in line in terms of what needs to be included in this infrastructure package. Obviously, more of an emphasis on your traditional aspects of infrastructure, less so on the social aspects of in- infrastructure highlighted by the White House. And I think the key stumbling block in these ongoing conversations is the pay force. Right. So Republicans want to put it more on users, gas tax, maybe a tax potentially on electric vehicles. The Biden administration doesn't want any kind of new taxes levied for anyone under uh, the 400K a year um, uh, income level. Well, that's Um, a big gap. How do they uh, overcome that? Yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's going to be an interesting thing. And and funny enough, the dynamics are are interesting within just the West Virginia delegation. Right. So you have Shelley Moore Capito, Republican. Uh, who's the ranking member on uh, Homeland Security, kind of dealing with his infrastructure bill in conversations with the White House. You, Jack, as you rightly point out, uh, you're seeing kind of an end run with Senator Manchin, uh, with Senators uh, um, uh, Romney and, of of course, um, uh, Portman of Ohio kind of doing this end run uh, in terms of a conversation on the sidelines now. Um, So it's anyone's guess as to how this will all play out, of course, too, with the backdrop of President Biden and the administration's uh, kind of supposed deadline that he wanted to see some action on this by the Memorial Day uh, weekend holiday, which is coming up this this weekend. Kevin, Kevin, I think what you described, though, is like there's a lot of action going on on this this issue in Congress right now, specifically in the Senate. And, I, and, it, and it pretends a lot of good potential outcomes, right? Because all of a sudden we're now talking about virtually no gap at all, you know, just a couple of hundred billion dollars between where the administration ended and where the Republicans are now picking up. And so you can see visibility that you didn't have even just a few days ago that maybe they can come up with a trillion dollar uh, uh, infrastructure bill. And, and as Roger Wicker said, uh, this would be the largest infrastructure bill in history by any stretch of the imagination. And and the fact is that you have Republicans engaging with Democrats. And, and, and even this dynamic you point out with Shelley Moore Capito and Manchin, a lot of it revolves around how do we get this done, right? How do you get the pay-fors? You know, are you going to need a filibuster break for this? Uh, you know, Manchin hasn't, hasn't been willing to concede any kind of changes in the way that uh, you need a 60-vote margin to approve this bill. So I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think that, frankly... There's so little respect for deficit spending uh, right now that at the end of the day, if the government writes a check for this, I think Republicans walk the plank because they did it all during the Trump administration, and uh, and Democrats won't. They're fine with that. Uh, the question is, what kind of tax relief does this give Joe Biden if there isn't a link to the to the infrastructure bill there? And that's a really interesting uh, dilemma for him. Well, that's what I want to get out here. We're we're hearing the conversations between the White House and the Senate Republicans that they're they're finding middle ground on what to spend money on, but not a ton on how to pay for it and how to offset that cost. But then there may be a bipartisan group that jumps in, and if that includes Joe Manchin, who did call for an increase in the corporate tax rate, not quite as high as President Biden has, who wanted 28 percent, but Joe Manchin has said you know 25 percent could be a good meet in the middle kind of idea, although Republicans don't want to do that. Should this, uh, Kevin, should this bipartisan group try to take the lead on the pay-fors, or who who comes up with this, and, and how, how do they resolve that? Who's who do, who do you think should be responsible for actually broaching this topic that they've kind of just set aside? 
Yeah, Jack, it's a good question. You know, I, I think you're seeing some uh, lines in the sand with regards to, again, these pay-fors. Uh, Republicans don't want to revisit the 17 uh, tax cut law. Uh, Biden is uh, adamant about uh, the pay-fors uh, for that 400K marker. So there might be an avenue for this bipartisan uh, group to negotiate on, on uh, those pay-fors. Specifically, you've got Rob Portman, a uh, longtime uh, senator from Ohio, uh, looking at uh, retirement in two years. Uh, this might be the last kind of key component thing that he can negotiate. He's well-respected within both parties, also as a fiscal conservative, but a fiscally-minded uh, Republican small-C conservative. Uh, so you have some interesting players, I think, behind the scenes that can negotiate uh, both sides on this and, and maybe bring bring some folks together, again, with the backdrop of 2022 coming up quickly. And Republicans are uh, you know, learning some things, I think, in the wake of the passage of the American Rescue Plan only by Democrats that that could be a key thing for Democrats to run on in just two years for the midterms. Republicans might want to go in on this and take some credit for bringing money back to their districts, too, with that midterm midterm backdrop. Right. That's interesting to know that that could potentially help them. Now, Rick, you have mentioned previously you're a little skeptical about the approach that Biden has taken so far in bipartisan talks in very, very publicly uh, making it clear that he's he's uh, talking in in a bipartisan way. You've you've mentioned before that if you really want to get something done in Washington, you get people together, you get them in a room. It doesn't need to be a big public thing. Uh, What is the more successful negotiating strategy? Strategy here, and I, I have to admit, I'm confused about what the exact negotiating strategy will be because we now have these this dual track, you know, two different groups of people having this conversation. Is one better than the other? Is is the White House and Senate Republican uh, conversation more effective or less effective than this bipartisan group? Or what do you make of that, Rick? Well, it's hard to not argue that he's had some success, right? I mean, we've gotten Republicans in one short uh, week go from 560 to almost a trillion dollars in willingness to spend on infrastructure. And so something's working behind the scenes. But I, but I, I, I agree with, with your assessment of my views, which is, you know, on a deal like this, you want to have the deal cooked and then bring it out publicly and let everybody shoot at it. And then you have the the bipartisan coalition that's defending it, and that includes how you're going to how you're going to pay for it. And so, the fact is, the best possible outcome at this point is sort of a, a period of chaos through this week, because after this week, everyone goes on recess until either the 7th of June or the 14th of June. And so, you're, Washington will clear out, and so this will be the shooting range that everyone's in right now. Right. Is to what we can get done by Friday, and and hopefully. Uh, this chaos, especially on the Republican side, where, you know, everyone seems to want to get in on the act. And I think Kevin's right. There is a lot of people who would love to take some credit for this when they come home. And so I think you're going to see a lot more Republicans wanting to sort of get their piece of the action here. Right. It does feel like we've got to see some progress, not a deal, but progress this week if something's going to happen. Kevin, you know, Rick mentioned earlier, if if Republicans are coming up uh, to a trillion dollars, last we heard from the White House was 1.7 trillion. But I know the Republicans want some of this to be unused money from the stimulus before. Do you you, real quick, do you agree with Rick saying that's actually pretty close? That's a manageable gap? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm in total agreement with Rick. And you've seen kind of the same numbers play out. Republicans have come up about $500 trillion. The, the, the administration has come down about $500 trillion from its 2.2 original offer. So those numbers are certainly encouraging for, for some right. kind of movement. 
Right. All right. So a bridgeable gap, probably. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. We've got Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media and a former Biden campaign surrogate with us. We've got Rick Davis, a Bloomberg politics contributor with us. And we've got news on what's going to happen in Congress relating to a January 6th 9-11 style bipartisan commission. Can this actually happen? Can there be bipartisan agreement to create this kind of commission to respond? Respond to the riots at the Capitol on January 6th. Well, Senator Major- Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said he wants a vote this week on a House-passed uh, measure that got a lot of Republican opposition to create a commission. Many Republicans are opposed. Republican leadership is opposed, although we've heard uh, a, a little bit of interest from Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney of Utah, Susan Collins of Maine has talked about tweaks that she would like to make uh, to this bill in order to get support. But let's uh, boil it down to what this is really about. Kevin, you wrote an op-ed in The Hill titled, Bipartisanship is Dead, Republicans Kill it, Killed It. Uh, you do not seem optimistic about the chances of this kind of commission. Tell us, what do, what do you expect to happen here? Do you see the Republican opposition to creating a, a commission to study what happened leading up to January 6th and on that day as totally en- entrenched? Is this just an intractable divide? Yeah, Jack, it's a good question. Thanks for highlighting the piece in the Hill. It's a bit of hyperbole. I'm a big bipartisanship fan. Uh, so it was a bit of a, a, of a stretch in terms of making that argument. But, you know, I compare it to the negotiations that went on back in 2003 um, with the setting up of the 9-11 Commission and just what a difference Congress has been over these last 20 years in terms of that was a voice vote as part of the intelligence reauthorization bill back in 2003. Got universal, near universal support in both the House and the Senate to establish this commission, regardless of where the facts would lead it. Of course, it was during the Bush administration, um, and Republicans were fully on board with that because they wanted an independent uh, investigation so this would not happen again. And I make the same case in, the, in this piece that we need the same kind of body uh, to investigate uh, this January 6th uh, attack uh, from this past year. Uh, and I think it's anyone's guess. You saw, as you rightly point out, Senators Collins, Romney, Murkowski making some waves that they would be supportive. You saw uh, a release uh, today from Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema uh, with regards to the filibuster and saying encouraging their Republican colleagues to get on board with this. Obviously, the majority leader, Schumer, Chuck Schumer, has said that he will bring this to the floor, regardless of where the votes are, make Republicans actually filibuster this. I think you're seeing some Republicans make the calculation, especially those in leadership, that they'll take the hit now, as opposed to having this commission go on for the next year or so into the midterms. They'll take the, the heat now in terms of the minds of the voters on this, when, when it is actually popular with the American people, they want this kind of investigation and this kind of accountability. So we'll see these next couple of days are critical. As Rick says, we're going out for the Memorial Day uh, weekend recess uh, in just a few days. So we'll see what, what plays out in these coming days and hours even. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. 
Right. Well, we're looking forward to a Senate vote. Let, let me be a little glib here just to, for the purpose of making a point and asking a question. Don't we know? Don't we know what happened? This played out extremely publicly on January 6th uh, in, in honestly a terrifying way. Uh, what, Rick, jump in. What, do you, what would you expect to learn from this kind of commission that we didn't see on TV or from the then president's tweets? Uh, I, I mean, I, sh- I know subpoenas are a relevant issue, but why do we need this if it played out so publicly? And what, do you, what kind of stuff do you anticipate we would learn from this if we do get this kind of commission? Yeah, I mean, just a, a note on the differences, too, with the 9-11, and I, I totally uh, uh, give kudos to Kevin for the op-ed. I think it's great to remind everybody that there was a period of time when we had a common enemy that, uh, you know, where the country was able to come together in a bipartisan, nonpartisan fashion. The problem here is that the common enemy was the Trump supporters that gathered at the White House and marched on the Capitol, right? And so yeah, they, we looked in the uh, mirror and the enemy was us. And so Republicans are in a very awkward position here. Even those who want legitimately a, 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 a real investigation that tells them how to uh, fix these problems of security and also avoid uh, these kinds of things just from the American public point of view, uh, are doing it with the clear understanding that it, it could potentially, if not certainly, uh, implicate the President of the United States and members of his cabinet and Republicans uh, on the Hill themselves. And so it's, it, it does have a slightly different dynamic than, than otherwise. And, and I think the hope that you know, like-minded Republicans have on who want a commission is, is they want to understand how all the events played that got the mob into the ellipse that day, why the intelligence didn't give more of a heads up with hundreds and thousands of people traveling to Washington on the invitation of the President of the United States to basically, you know, try to protest an election and and not more security was called for well in advance. Regardless of what happened that day, uh, you could have seen this come in weeks in advance when you checked the message boards of some of these groups that participated in this. So I think the idea is we were caught off guard, and we we can never allow this to happen to our democracy again. Well, clearly, some some that's a good point. Some lessons to be learned about what exactly happened, not just with the Capitol Police, but with a slow uh, response from the National Guard. And to your point, Rick, you know this came to a head on the politics and the difference between this and 9/11 when Speaker Pelosi described this as the enemy is within. Uh, but of course, when you use that kind of language, it's tough to get bipartisan partisan agreement on something. Uh, So we'll see a vote later this week in the Senate on that commission. I am Jack Fitzpatrick. We've got Kevin Walling and Rick Davis here. Now, the big news we got earlier today was President Joe Biden will meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin in a meeting that was in the making for a little while, June 15th and 16th in Geneva, Switzerland. Other piece of news on that is that Biden will raise the issue of what has happened in Belarus with the uh, detainment of a dissident who was on a flight going over Belarus that was forced to land in Minsk. Uh, 
Now, before we get to the whole conversation of how these things tie together uh, at a time when, yes, by the way, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is uh, on a Middle East tour uh, trying to address everything that has happened in Israel, uh, between Israel and Palestine, uh, let's hear from Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner, who spoke earlier today with Bloomberg's David Weston about this upcoming meeting between Biden and Putin and about Belarus. Here's the sound on that. I think it's outrageous. You know, you've got a third country plane with Ryanair flying from one NATO city to another NATO city, and uh, this plane, in a sense, being hijacked. I, I think this goes at the heart of whether the West as a as a whole is going to stand up to Russia. Uh, obviously, the Belarus administration is the only reason that president still is sitting there is because of support from Putin. We've seen dramatic pushback against his autocratic uh, tendencies in the streets of Minsk and for a number of months. But um, Putin, again, supports uh, repressive regimes in his neighborhood and, frankly, around the world. And I think we need to stand up against this. This cannot be condoned or acceptable. And I think it's appropriate that the EU and others ought to be taking Western aircraft out of Belarus airspace and, for that matter, cutting back on Belarus uh, flights into uh, NATO or Western countries. President Biden has confirmed that he will have a summit meeting now with President Putin in the middle of June over in Geneva, Switzerland. Is that wise? Listen, I think it's important that we, we sit down and talk with our adversaries. But let's not forget for a moment that Putin has two goals. One, to constantly, and he's done a pretty good job of this, show disruption in the West and undermine America. Uh, on one level, because that's kind of the basis of his foreign policy, but it's also a way for him to point out to the people of Russia, hey, these democracies don't work. The more he can undermine democracy throughout the West, it strengthens his domestic position. And as we've seen with some of the protests around Mr. Uh, Navalny, you know, there is a there are a great number of particularly younger Russians who are upset with um, uh, Putin's policy. So while I think it's important that President Biden talk with him. I think we need to go in with a realistic eye, not the kind of rose-colored glasses that Trump had. I mean, Trump managed to trash virtually every political leader in the world and in our country. The only person he never said a bad word about was Vladimir Putin. I think uh, Joe Biden needs to go in with a much more honest assessment, recognizing that Russia continues to try to undermine our system and our democracy uh, in a variety of ways. All right. There's a lot of information there. Let me start with the obvious question, because this is this is going to be big news in the middle of June, the meeting between Biden and Putin. Rick, what's on your radar? What do you think the top priorities would be there? And what are your expectations for that meeting? You know, I think one of the top things that's you know, fallen off the radar screen since last week, but, you know, uh, cybersecurity uh, is going to be one of the very hot topics. Uh, Russia has basically created a global uh, terror group around cyber that they either sponsor or host. And, uh, you know, we don't have to look far from the, uh, the, the incursions out of Russia uh, by a private group who held ransom our energy supply in the East Coast uh, for, for a week. Uh, so I think that's one. I, I think that, too, uh, troops massing on the border of Ukraine. I mean, like mm -hmm. we, we're not paying much attention to this, but like for weeks on end, there have been uh, huge amounts of troop movements on the border of Ukraine, destabilizing the Ukrainian government, which is probably their intent, but doing it relatively under the cloud of all these other controversies. And then when you look at, uh, as, uh, as, as Senator Mark Warner pointed out, all the uh, 
the, the, the adventurism by uh, Vladimir Putin in support of people like uh, Belarus's Lukashenko and the repression and, 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 and things they're doing to their own uh, communities, uh, I think that human rights is going to be a big issue because it's not just happening in places like Minsk, it's happening in, in, in Moscow too. And this repression is exactly what most dictators use is sort of right out of their toolkit of staying in power. Right. So those are really good points. And it, it's honestly a little bizarre almost how such important things can feel like they've gone a bit under the radar. The Ukraine, the, the troops massing near Ukraine in particular, I mean, we all remember 2014. This is a, a very significant kind of threat uh, from Russia. Uh, Kevin, are we missing anything? What is, uh, what is on your radar? What are your expectations for this uh, Biden-Putin meeting in June? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, completely agree with Rick in terms of the focus on uh, hacking cybersecurity, uh, not just hacking of our elections and our democracy, but also the solar winds hack. You saw the Biden administration respond with increased sanctions in April, probably one of the lowest points we've seen in in terms of our bilateral relationship uh, with Russia and our ambassadors coming home, uh, not being recalled, but obviously coming home for consultation. Uh, but this meeting falls right after the president's first international trip to the G7, to the NATO summit. So he will be meeting with our allies in the region directly before uh, meeting uh, with Putin uh, in Geneva, as you point out. But I think it's certainly going to be focusing on the cybersecurity uh, realm, a little right. bit probably on uh, negotiations around where the START Treaty goes from there. That was one of the interesting things to come out just in the first weeks of the Biden administration and a five-year increase in that. I'll just say as a point of pre- personal privilege, this is one of these times, uh, and there are many, that I wish uh, Rick's uh, former boss is still with us, Senator John McCain, because he was such an expert on this region. And we could certainly use uh, his insights right now in terms of not just Russia, but also this former Soviet bloc states as well. Good points from both of you. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media and a former Biden campaign surrogate and Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis. Really excited to talk to uh, Rick in particular, who worked for so long for John McCain about what's happening uh, in uh, in Russia and in Belarus. A lot of questions to uh, to answer here. Thanks to you both for joining. Now, look, we're getting into the Belarus discussion, and I'm curious what exactly the U.S. role is, because we had news the other day about the EU agreeing to sanctions. There were even some uh, images circulating today of flight traffic maps showing the lack of flight traffic uh, expectedly over uh, Belarus. But what does the U.S. do? Now, this came up at today's White House press briefing. Let's listen to what Press Secretary Jen Psaki had to say. It's only been a few days. It's not not been that long. I will say that the president has asked his team to develop appropriate options in close coordination with the European Union, our allies, and other international organizations uh, to help hold the Lukashenko regime to account, including sanctions. Okay, so Rick, uh, what are the options that she's referring to? What what is in our bag of of uh, possibilities here? Uh, what are the options, and how important it is, is it for the U.S. to even respond to this? There's been a response from the EU, uh, but how important is is it for the U.S. to respond, and what might that response look like, Rick? 
Jack, I think it's really important that the U.S. respond. And, and the reason being is because we've had a very spotty record on Belarus, right? During the, the, the Trump administration, just 14 months ago, Secretary Pompeo visited Minsk uh, to have a meeting with Lukashenko, who prior to that was seen as pretty much of a thug and a tool of uh, Vladimir Putin's. And, and, and it was the first time in uh, over 25 years that a, a official from the United States sort of uh, created legitimacy around this government. And so we go from there to 14 months later to having this crisis. And I think it's got to be clear where the United States stands. I mean, as Kevin pointed out, you know, we missed John McCain. John McCain called these guys thugs and killers because they are thugs and killers. And yet, you know, we have to have a policy that associates with them. And I think that joining the EU uh, and making sure that the world community, what we can do as an America is to put our allies on notice that we want everyone focused on this and to create regimes around it, uh, a sanctions regime that isn't just unilateral. What the United States will do to Belarus is probably not that big a deal. But the United States could create a global coalition of people who can put a lot of pressure not just on, on Belarus, but also on Vladimir Putin. There's no question that Lukashenko would not be in charge in Belarus today if not for following the Putin playbook and being a Putin stooge in that part of the world. That, uh, you, those are two, I think, two important points I just want to underline uh, by Rick. One, the question uh, it doesn't seem to just be what are the sanctions, but who do you legitimize? What do you do to legitimize certain leaders uh, and who do you not legitimize? Um, uh, now, I, I wanted to, to uh, try to wrap my head around uh, in foreign policy, how much has happened that is part of the Biden playbook and how much is really out of the blue? It seemed like the tensions in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine was really not, uh, obviously not planned for Biden, but it, it was a, a bit of a contradiction, in fact, to uh, how they seem to try to focus early on on an East Asia plan. But when it comes to Belarus and Russia, obviously there was uh, discussion for so long about an eventual meeting between Biden and Putin. And yet, obviously, what we saw with Belarus was unpredictable. Kevin, how do you how do you round up when it comes to Biden setting a foreign policy agenda? How much has gone to plan and how much has just sort of popped up and surprised him? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Jack. I mean, I, I think you're seeing this administration react to a bunch of these different uh, things around the world and also domestically, obviously, with the pipeline hack, uh, you know, the, the response in terms of a cybersecurity uh, executive order and beefing that up. But, you know, you're seeing a lot of uh, things happen in the Biden administration reacting to that. You bring up the, the situation with Israel and Hamas and what we saw kind of coming out of that was a bit more of the silent behind the scenes diplomacy that uh, the president was known for his uh, eight years as vice president, 36 years uh, in the Senate. Uh, behind the scenes. Obviously, as you uh, pointed out, too, our Secretary of State is in the region uh, today meeting with Bibi Netanyahu, uh, meeting uh, with Abbas uh, later on in Ramallah. That meeting's already happened. So kind of deputizing uh, the, his trusted allies around him, uh, his trusted staff, rather, uh, and the Secretary of State has been by the President's side for 20-plus uh, years. So I think you're seeing a reactive administration uh, but also wanting to project America uh, back as a indispensable part of the world community, uh, as we were, I think, in the years uh, during Bush, Obama, kind of previous right. to the Trump administration, but now also, too, under uh, President Biden. 
Right. I, by the way, I blanked before when I was highlighting the points that Rick made. The, the other important point on Belarus is how much of this uh, goes through Russia, goes through Putin and Putin's broader influence. Now, one thing that Senator Warner mentioned in the clip we played uh, that we haven't discussed that I, I just want to touch on is the role of younger Russians and how that affects uh, domestic politics in Russia and, and how they what their outlook is uh, to the rest of the world. Rick, can you just touch on that? I, I mean, what's the role of younger Russians uh, in terms of their relationship to Putin, their support or opposition to Putin, and how important is the, the younger generation in Russia? You know, I think it's a really good point that Senator Warner made because he's looking sort of beyond the headlines and, and looking at what's been going on in Russia for some time. And, and we've seen reporting uh, over the last year about a protest movement that's been fueled by young people uh, in Russia against Vladimir Putin. And, and the, the leader of that opposition, uh, Navalny, uh, uh, you know, was a highly visible issue on the front page of every newspaper for a long time after having gotten poisoned by uh, Vladimir Putin and his regime, uh, not unlike a lot of other opposition figures uh, in the past, and, and, and is now uh, in, a, uh, in a Russian gulag, uh, you know, waiting action on, on his cause. And so I think that, that we can show optimism to uh, Russian youth to say there are people out there like the United States that care about what's going on there and think that they ought to have the freedoms and the liberties afforded to other people around the world, uh, especially since the Vladimir Putin makes a big deal every four years about uh, acting as if he's a functioning democracy. Well, let's, let's let that turn back on him. And, and make sure these people all know that they should have an opportunity to pick their leaders. This is this is my time for uh, a radio book club. Rick, do you ever read the book came out a few years ago, The Future is History by Masha Gessen? Yes. It, 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 I, I, th- I thought that was a, a very good sort of recent history of the protest movement and sort of generational divide. I guess that's my, my official book recommendation on this topic of the day. Uh, let's talk Middle East. Now, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, says the U.S. is going to uh, provide more than $100 million total aid that will uh, go to Gaza. I'm curious, uh, Kevin, with so much political pressure uh, surrounding this issue on Biden when we heard from a number of Democrats uh, very quickly calling for a ceasefire. There's the issue of uh, the arms sale from the U.S. to Israel. Does an action like this and what we've seen from Blinken talking about helping rebuild Gaza to, to some extent, does that hold over critics of the U.S.'s stance with Israel or, or is this just a, a really tough issue that's not going away? Yeah, Jack, it's a good question. I think it's more the latter. There will be always critics, as we've seen within my own party in terms of the Democrats, uh, with uh, you know this potential arms sale to, to Israel, um, uh, what have you. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think you're seeing a little bit of a change in tone in, in terms of the U.S. administration to the Middle East. Um, uh, you saw a fairly successful meeting with Abbas today. I think you're seeing administration and a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to make sure that the aid is directly going to benefit the Palestinian people, not just in the West Bank, but obviously the two million or so uh, folks in in Gaza, and to further, uh, uh, you know, uh, destroy, um, delegitimize, isolate Hamas as part of that. Uh, because I think we need to make the case to the Palestinian people that we are on their side in terms of negotiating a two-state s- solution in good faith, 
Hamas will not ever be part of what that negotiation will take place. So we've got to isolate them, give some hope back to uh, the Palestinians living in Gaza, the West Bank, what have you. And I think you're seeing a little bit of that from the Secretary of State in that region today. Right. I just want to briefly touch on one other issue that came up today. This was the anniversary of the death of George Floyd, and that was also supposed to be the deadline that President Biden gave lawmakers to try to agree to a police policy overhaul bill and get it to his desk. Clearly, that hasn't happened, uh, but there are discussions going on. A recent quote from Senator Cory Booker saying, we're a lot closer, uh, but it's not imminent. Kevin, uh, are you hopeful that there's actually going to be a deal on some federal policing policy overhaul, or where do we stand in this? I really am. You've got three of the best lawmakers, I think, uh, in terms of Tim Scott, Cory uh, Booker in the Senate, uh, and Karen Bass in the House, who heads up the Congressional Black Caucus. They're negotiating behind the scenes. The administration is very hands-off, as are uh, Senate and, and House leadership. I think that's the way to do it. Let them bring these solutions to their colleagues right. and get it passed. All right. Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media, former Biden campaign surrogate. Thank you so much for joining us. And as he so often is, uh, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor, very insightful. That's it for us. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.